0: Today on Desert Island Torah, we have the Z'chut of speaking to Tamar Weissman. Tamar teaches Tanakh and Land of Israel studies and is a licensed tour guide in Israel, specialising in northern Israel. She is the author of Tribal Lands, the Twelve Tribes and their Ancestral Territories, which explores the personalities of the Shvatim and the contours of the Nahalot. And she has completed another book on Michalat Esther. So Tamar, how are you today? Baruch Hashem. Wonderful. How are you? Baruch Hashem. Thank you so much for joining. It's a real zuchat to have you with us and really looking forward to learning.
1: I was so intrigued by the premise of this podcast. I gave it quite a bit of thought, actually. Um, so I'm also very excited to have this time to learn with this wonderful format that allows for us to talk Torah, even
0: though we may be separated by thousands of kilometers. So. So if we go straight in, it's desert island Torah. Three pieces of Torah you would take with you on a desert island and why? What they mean to you? Why they are so important to you? Let's jump right in. So, do you want to start off with your first piece?
1: Yeah. So I, I, I first when I thought about this, and thank you for this, um, this challenge and this construct of of this idea of a desert island, um, which to me automatically means that I am separated from Eretz Yisrael. Um, so it was a per- perfect um, thinking experiment for uh, the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av, uh, which is where we find ourselves in now, in this occasion of, of our meeting, um, and the, 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 the uh, consequent Avelut that I would feel if I were separated from Eretz from Yisrael. Um, so that's placing me on some desert island. Um, that um, will distance me from from that which I so deeply love, um, I thought that that in that context that I would require three three things to um, keep me from going fully insane <laughs> um, you know when you 're separated from a home that you feel so deeply about, then you really need to. Um, figure out how to survive. Um, and the uh, survival is not just in the sense of um, how would I get, you know, physically survive, but how would I survive emotionally? How would, um, how would I survive mentally? So I, I um, thought along three lines which break down into these three pieces of Torah that I'd like to discuss with you today. The first with that was that I would need something that would comfort me, something that would take me out of my uh, state of great dismay at, um, at, at finding myself in such a situation. So I would need a, um, uh, a, a comforting or, uh, or serenity-inducing uh, thoughts or a piece of Torah that would provide me with that grounding, that comfort. And the second thing that I would need would be something that could engage me mentally and keep me mentally facile um, uh, and and keep me from a downward spiral. Uh, And the third piece that I would need would be that which would Uh, Feed my continuous yearning to return back to my home and so it's with that framework of those three pieces the piece that's going to provide me the comfort and the piece that will provide me the and the mental engagement and excitement that comes from uh, staying mentally active and and um, and acute and um, the third piece, which would uh, encourage my my yearning to to get out of my state and go back to where I belong. So with that said, um, I'd like to first talk about that piece of Torah that brings me the most comfort, which um, to me is the absolute appropriate Torah to learn together and to meditate on uh, when leading up to Tisha B'av, which is the Moed of Avelut, um, where you confront total loss. And I think that this is a piece that um, is so, gives me such nechama uh, that, um, that I've been taking it with me for many years. It is a piece of Torah that, like most of the Torah, that um, forms who I am. Uh, I have... Um, I have acquired from my Rav, Rav Matis Weinberg. And um, in his many, many years of Shiurim and Teshab'av, um he tends to circle back to that formative and, and fundamental um, piece of Agadatah in Mesechet Gitin that we all are familiar with. It's the Kamsan Bar story, but which he suggests is. Is just so widely misunderstood, and I'd like to talk a, a bit about that in this small time that we have. Um, we normally think of the Kamsa and Bar Kamsa story as a great piece to talk about Sinat Chinam, as an opportunity to say, oh, if only the Balabayat would have been a little bit more gracious to Bar Kamsa, uh, who found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, and would have allowed him to save face, then we could have avoided the terrible ramifications of Khorban. But indeed, that's not at all what the Agarita is talking about. It's not what the Gemara is talking about. Uh, the whole piece of Kamsa Bar Kamsa is framed with a pasuk from Mishlei. Pasuk from a verse from Proverbs, um, which which reads, adam tamid. Fortunate is the person who is always fearful. And he who um, hardens his heart will fall into evil. It's a difficult pasuk, but that's the pasuk that brings me a tremendous amount of comfort getting back to my position there on this deserted island. Um, the pasuk, Ashraya Adam Mifachet Tamid, fortunate is one who is always fearful, is really what the Kamsa Bar Kamsa story is about. Because this is a story not about the misstep of the host who did not um, adequately uh, welcome this guest that he hated into his home. The story is about the fallout and what happens with a a uh, character that we don't talk too much about, a rabbi, a sage by the name of Reb Bar of Kulos. Basically Bar Kamsa is so injured and so humiliated that he is going to take revenge, entirety of Am Yisrael, and he does this by suggesting to the Caesar, or to the Roman ruler, why don't you try bringing a suggesting that the uh that bene Yisrael bring a carban, bring a sacrifice um and on your behalf in honor of the caesar and the caesar's like that's a good way to test their loyalty he sends the sacrifice but on the way our to make sure that the sacrifice is blemished by cutting uh, uh um cutting into the the animal's lip And then this blemish sacrifice, which we know is prohibited from being brought as a sacrifice, so you can't bring a blemish animal as a sacrifice, um, is paraded before the sages. And the sages say, we don't know what to do. If we don't bring it, then the Romans will be angered at our lack of seeming lack of loyalty. But if we do bring it, then we are transgressing uh, prohibition. And Rav Bar of Kulos is the sage who says, no way, we cannot bring this, this uh, sacrifice. Um, and it, here's the clincher. Um, it, it, the Rebbe Yochanan, who was the one who introduced this whole story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa, says, it's not Bar Kamsa and the host. It's the anvitanuto shall rabbi bar Avkilas that Hechriba et at Beteno Vistarfa Techaleno Bahagli eno meartseno. It is the 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 humility or the um the obsequiousness of Rabbi Zacharya bar afkulos that really is the cause of our total loss. What he's saying here, and this is very clear in subsequent examples that he brings within this Agarita, is that the fault lies with Rav Zechariah ben Avkoulos' misplaced um, sense of right and wrong. Because Rav Zechariah ben Avkoulos was so focused in on the minutia of what he felt was important that he failed to realize that everything could be lost, that were he only to have put aside his sense of righteous indignation god forbid should a sacrifice that has a blemish be brought in the temple had he put that aside then we might have avoided, Rabbi Yochanan suggests, the entire destruction of the temple. And subsequent, I don't want to go too deeply into it because we have a lot of Torah to discuss on our desert island. But subsequent to that story um, are two other uh, examples of where, the, uh, where, the, where B'nai Yisrael are taking their own sense of what is right and wrong and championing it above reality. When, for instance, the Romans, uh, without knowing how deeply this would injure B'nai Yisrael, um, when they took, a, they, were, they were hungry, so they took a, um, a chicken and a hen and they slaughtered them, not realizing that to this particular community of, of B'nai Yisrael, the chicken symbolized the bride, the, the groom and the hen symbolized the bride, and God forbid, should they be taken and it was because of the umbrage, this righteous indignation, that they felt about their own sense of what was right and wrong that led to subsequent disaster and ill-feeling between the Romans and the Jews, and then, and then that led to the destruction of the temple. The greater lesson here, and the lesson that brings me a great deal of nechama, is Ashrei adam mefachid tamid. Fortunate is he who can understand just how much can be lost. That if we manage to get ourselves out of our own very narrow individual situations, I am on this desert island and I don't know when help will come and I am panicking and this is all that matters to me at the moment. If we we can remove ourselves from the things that we feel are the most important things to us, that I wear a certain colored shirt, uh, on Shabbat, or don't wear a colored shirt, that I cover my hair this way, or I, or I cover my hair at all, um, that um, this rabbi get this honor, or whatever the case may be, these tiny, totally insignificant things that, t- that tether us down um, and, 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 and preoccupy us. If we can get to the core of just what we can lose, and how much is at stake, then we can develop ourselves and progress ourselves into true nechama. Because what nechama means is understanding reality, understanding that though I am gifted and you are gifted to live in this magnificent world where we can easily, as a nation, return to Eretz Israel, never to take that for granted, never to feel that everything may be lost, in an instant and um, and nothing is a given in this world, that the Beit HaMikdash may be destroyed and to approach reality, to, to achieve Nechama, which is approaching reality with this new framework, this new mindset of how tenuous our existence is in this world. And then I can live in this world with a true knowledge of just what may be lost at any minute. And therefore, I can sink deeply into my present and truly appreciate my present for what it is, and not allow my mind to be clouded by all of the stupidity and the minutiae, which we call, I'm sorry, but what we call religion. I I myself as an observant Jew, um, not at all meaning to knock religion, but. As we all know, in our different communities, we tend to stand on stupid ceremonies that remove us from the reality of, of, of our situation and what might really be lost. So, to me, kind of it, with that incongruity of Ashrei Adam Mithachay Tamid, fortunate is he who can here and there fully dwell on what may truly be lost then we can truly appreciate our present and our position um, um, at this very moment. Like it's, it's that to me is, is also the message of Tisha which is, you can get caught and spend your entire life talking about politics. You can spend your entire life talking about the Munus Applied Halacha. But if you are going to be that Rev Zechariah Bar of Kulos and dwell only on that, then this entire wonderful reality that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is gifting us, it might not be within the next instant. So that is my piece of Torah number one, that would, if I was on a desert island, would cause, would bring me to a great deal of nechama from my Avelut, my Avelut of confronting disaster and nechama of uh, readjusting myself after that disaster into the fact that I am here, I exist, and the only thing that I can do is have a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even when I have no idea what's happening with the rest of the world. That is number one.
0: Wow. We're good? <laughs> wow, uh, really powerful and important. Um, and it's really important to think about how we work creatively and positively within Parameters of halakha when confronting the difficulties in society, um, most definitely really, really powerful and important, especially to think about now as we approach Tisha B'Av, um, and really inspiring. So, are we ready to go on to our second piece of Torah? We are, we are,
1: we are. After I've achieved that, that measure of um interior serenity, let's say, the the um the the shalvat ha um i would want now i i'm i approach this thought experiment with some assumptions my assumption is that i'm not without texts that i happen to land on a desert island that has full access to the entire gamut of rabbinic literature all right that's what i'm working under and i'm not changing my story so that said i've I've achieved that kind of menuchat ha nefesh of realizing a tremendous amount has been lost, but I can reframe myself and stand here. Mo, hakadosh baruch mo myself. We're the only ones at this moment, and now I have an opportunity to fully engage in the type of talmud Torah that um, that that I know how to. And for that, I would say um my when you asked what well, pieces of torah you, uh, you you allowed me to include Sparim, and i would have at my disposal um rabbi lewis ginsberg's legends of the jews now this to me is a is is my fundamental tool for i'm someone who engages in in study of tanakh and midrash um and and um, this is really my fundamental tool for doing so And the way that I use Legends of the Jews is not so much to read his four-volume paraphrase of Agarita. What, what this man managed to do in the first part of the 20th century, you know, before there were search engines and before there was any real techno- technological tools at his disposal, with his encyclopedic memory and mind, he combed the entirety, not only the entire gamut of, of, of rabbinic literature, but also um, external literature, the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha. Um, Christian texts, Muslim texts. And he provided a paraphrase of Tanakh, incorporating Agadita into it. And the most valuable part of his series are the uh, footnotes where everything is exhaustively documented. Uh, he wrote this in German, and then I'm from Baltimore in America, and um, and Henrietta Zold, who is also from Baltimore, so she's a special place in my heart. She translated this whole thing um, in the early 1900s into English, um, and so I would take this series on the desert island, and I would um, try and 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 excite my brain, delight my brain, um, and myself. And my my seichel with the study of Talmud Torah, with the study of Torah, meaning that I would you try to use those footnotes and, tra- and 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 trace back the sources of midrash and the textual pins within text within Tanakh that produce the midrash and what the function of the midrash is. So I know our time is limited, but I'll give you an example. Um, you know that when it comes to, say, Shevet Yisachar, um, it, who was one of the, the 12 tribes, one of the sons of Yaakov, Jacob, and, and, uh, and um, Leah, um, that, well, at least I, I, I grew up always thinking of him as the tribe that embodies the Torah, the Ben Torah, the scholar, the Jewish scholar. And um, if you look throughout, the stories of Greshit, there is no indication that Yisachar is in any way bookish or in any way a scholar. There's very little information about this son of Yaakov. Um, Now, there is, however, a huge midrashic literature motif that will read back into the text at every opportunity that Yisachar is a Torah scholar. And that he has all of this applied knowledge, and he can intercalate the calendar, and he can provide advice, and that he can spread Torah. Now, where is this coming from? It happens to be that there is a verse in the book of Chronicles in divrei Hayamim, one of the four verses about Yisachar, that describes the tribe of Yisachar as Yodei Binaliitim, that they are a tribe that happens to have a specialized wisdom to understand the times. These three words build a whole world of Midrash, that not only Chazal, but then the utilizers of Chazal, our parshanim, our, our commentators, will then apply at every turn when Yisachar appears on the scene and will read into, let's say, the blessings of Yaakov to Yisachar, or the blessings of Moshe to Yisachar, or the uh, every time Yisachar as a tribe may be mentioned throughout the the from Shetora, we'll read in to um, every reference a, a scholarly gloss or 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 a an indication that this is that they are are are, um, are great stages. What do I mean by all of this? Why would this? Why would I bring this with me to a desert island? Because I find that the exercise, if you will of understanding Chaza, of uncovering their methodology and how they work and what they base their their seemingly pulled from thin air um, um, ideas from is such a delight, and it enriches your study of the Torah so you're not just learning a whole series of stories. You're understanding how midrash is it functions. That it always has a textual pin. It has a basis, and it always serves to function in some way. In that chazal will over and over and over again introduce Yisachar as a ben Torah because they are looking to have us understand that essential nature of this tribe and his contribution to the entirety of the people, even when it's not overtly present. And that to me is at least one way to study Torah. And the legends of the Jews, if I had it at my disposal, would give me, would provide for me endless delight and joy as I'm waiting for my
0: rescue ship to arrive. So that's piece number two. Wow. Legends of the Jews. So interesting um, and important. Definitely to take a sefer and look at it in such a way. Really inspiring. Um, and really important to take that midrashic approach um, and apply it to your life. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really inspiring. So, are we ready for piece number three? We are ready for piece number
1: three. So, I have my comfort, my Nechama from always from grounding myself away from all of the trappings of the, of the minutia of my life and confronting my reality. And now I have um, given myself extra comfort with being able to be engaged in Talmud Torah. And now finally, the last piece is, um, is the piece that will keep me yearning for that which I have temporarily lost, but which I hope my rescue ship will bring me back to as soon as possible. And that piece for me um, is a um, is an essay um, by my Rev Rav, Rav, Rav Matus Weinberg, and one of his uh, Sparim, his treatment of the Hamisha She Torah, of the Torah, in his work called Frameworks um, and in his volume on Bereshit, on Genesis, um, he introduces a concept, which I had heard of before, but sometimes, you know, you have a piece, a composition or a piece of poetry that is, becomes so much a part of you that you'll take it with you and you can read it dozens or hundreds of times and it never fails to uh, sink even more deeply into you and form who you are, and so with this particular piece, which I would like to have at my disposal, because those are the rules of the game. Um, this is a his uh, his one of his um, articles or one of his uh, um, treatments of of the Parsha Sara. In in Parsha Chayes Sara, um, the fifth Parsha in Sefer Bereishit, uh, the one of the themes. One of the stories is about Avraham mourning the loss of his wife um, and the the uh, shot opens with the depth of his loss and how attached he was to sarah and um, and then um, after he has has felt her loss, he seeks to find a burial place for her, and we know where the burial place is that he finds it is in Chevron. Uh, it is in the field of Ephron HaChiti. It is Me'arat HaMachpela, which you can go and visit up through today. Um, and he purchases the first Kinyan, the first purchase in Eretz Yisrael, made by uh, one of our forefathers. There will be subsequent purchases. Yaakov will purchase Shechem, David will purchase um, Har Habayit, um, <laughs> By the way, the three official purchases are probably the most contested areas of Eretz Yisrael in present day. Chevron, Nab, Chevron uh, is, is is obviously contested. Shechem being Nablus as well, and and the Temple Mount. Um, but that aside, he purchases this Merad Hamachpelah uh, for Sarah, his beloved. And um, I just would like to read um, from just a few a few brief selections from this essay Um, and the first selection i will read is um, uh, from his essay for the love of a woman the relationship with sarah underlies Abraham's possession of land in coming to a consuming awareness of what sarah means to him he is able to achieve an awareness of what connectedness means to him that he can be attached to the earth itself and come to possess it. What Rav here is saying, if I can paraphrase, is that it is specifically the internment of Sarah into the land of Israel, of his beloved wife, into this land that forms for him his connection, his sense of belonging to the land of Israel. And indeed, and this is a marvelous, follow-up to the idea. Um, In Misachat Kiddushin, when we talk about um, the the ways, through the methods, uh, the mechanisms through which um, a couple can get married, uh, Isha Nicknate, a woman is in a sense um, acquired. I won't go into all of the overtures of what that may mean to the modern sensibility, but that is the opening Mishnah and Mesechet Kiddushin. Um, the Mishnah opens that, she, that, that a woman is acquired through different mechanisms, and one way that she is taken as a wife is through giving her something of value, right? That's why we have this idea of under the chuppah, the woman is given, a, a, usually a ring, but it can really be anything of value. And, and this is based in the verse in Sefer Dvarim, in the book of Deuteronomy, ki yikach ish isha, when a man takes a woman. What does it mean, takes? How do we, what is, Maybe he can just take her, throw, a, throw her over his shoulder and take her into his cave. Like what does it mean to take? How do why do we understand take as involving a monetary transaction? Well, the Mishnah goes on to say we learn that there must be some kind of a monetary transaction through the whole episode of Avraham with Stay Ephron with Ma'arat Amachpelah, where the verse reads, Avraham says to Ephron, "Natati kesef hasadeh. I have given the money for your field. Kach mimeni." Take it from me. The fact that there are these two languages of lakachet, or what, what the Gemara calls kicha, these two languages of acquisition, both involving, the, the first one involving a monetary transaction, establishes that a marriage also is through a monetary transaction. So um, thinking through, through the ramifications of what that means um, in terms of um, acquiring a woman, so to speak, or acquiring land, um, brings me in my desert island to a great deal of yearning for um, for my family, my husband, and my land And Eretz Yisrael, because to me, they are essentially... Uh, two ways to yearn for the same thing what am i yearning for i'm yearning to feel connected i'm yearning to feel a sense of belonging i'm i am not it's not a matter of acquiring it's not a matter of buying because a relationship and land outlives us forever when one is engaged in a relationship with another person, then the relationship itself is its own thing, it's its, it's, its own sense of belonging. Um, I, I will read from uh, the way that um, Rav Matis puts it, um, um, by linking the acquisition of fields with marriage, the Torah brings us to see the unique sense of belonging applied to the earth and to woman, which is entirely different than being owned, I want whoever may be listening to this to be clear on that point. A car or a toaster oven can be owned, but the word own has no bearing on the unique relationship between human and the field that must outlive him forever. The word own has no place in the special relationship between man and woman. Belonging has the different meaning of suitability and association which comes closer to the connotations of the words kicha, kicha, take and take, used to link marriage and earth. So um, while deeply conceptual, I'm going to try in the minute that we have left, because I know we're, we're limited in time here, to try and, um, and frame this for my last piece of Desert Island Torah, um, which is that uh, while I'm there uh, alone on my desert island, without the comfort of of relationships that i've spent you know many years building without the comfort of my lands with which i have a deep relationship um the two become integrally linked in my mind and 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 form within me a great yearning to return to not feel disconnected to feel deeply connected to this world we connect to this world and i will say as jews because I want to speak specifically about Eretz Yisrael. We connect to this world through nurturing and developing our interconnectedness within our people, but just as equally through nurturing and developing our sense of belonging and connectedness to Eretz Yisrael. And that to me is the kicha kicha um, gezerah shava that Chazal were, were implying in the beginning of Masechet Kiddushin. Just as I am bound and I belong to my husband and he is bound and belong to, belongs to me through the dynamic of an ongoing relationship, so too we are bound and belong to Eretz Yisrael through the Kinyan that Avraham did for his beloved wife Sarah with Marat HaMachpila. It is a, a, an ongoing Relationship that requires our investment, our involvement, our commitment, um, (laughs) and is a relationship that is that to me is one and the same as any human relationship that I can have. The more deeply I I, I live here and 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 strike roots here and understand um, Eretz Israel, then the more I understand it in the sense of. Um, the deep-rooted relationship that um, a dold has with his ra'aya, that a beloved has with his lover. And it is something that if I were, God forbid, on a desert island and uh, separated from those who I love the most and the land that I love the most, um, I would want to meditate on my yearning to return back to that which I know is the place of my belonging that belongs to me um, and that, God willing, that ship would be coming soon to take me back to where I belong. So with that said, those are the three pieces of Torah that I think would sustain me in that hopefully very brief time separated from my, uh, those who I love in Eretz Israel.
0: Wow, that is really powerful and so important to think about Eretz Israel. Um, and may we all be there soon, one day. Amen. Um, and really inspiring. So thank you so much for joining us today. It was a thank pleasure. Thank you so much. And may we learn together soon.
1: Amen. Amen. And may, may this time leading up to, to Shabbat be a time when we can all really embrace the concept of um, where, where we really work very, very hard to bring Hashem into our context and not um, cloud our context with things that are irrelevant and are damaging and realize just how much is at stake and truly live in this present. Um, rather here up in, 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 uh, here in Eretz Israel than the desert islands, but truly be as much as we can in the moment. And I hope that um, whoever may be listening to this, if you are in Eretz Israel or if you're planning on coming to Eretz Israel, um, may we meet often on the journey. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisra. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.